from the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chat Skill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, a rocky start in Albany. The New York State legislative session gets off to a tumbling start. Our Capitol correspondent, Karen DeWitt, gives us an update. Winter whiplash, extreme weather temperatures, and wild weather patterns out west. But overall, pretty mild in our region. What's going on? Leif Johansson from his podcast, Close to Home, takes a closer look. And TV news, it's undergone a remarkable transformation in the last seven decades. We'll speak to Professor Emeritus of Fordham University, Brian Rose, about these sweeping changes and a preview of his E.B. Crawford Monticello Public Library, and that's the way it was talk. Plus, Dale and Brian are here for Pride Time. But first, the news from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder in Memphis, Tennessee. Protesters were on the streets following the release of body cam video showing the fatal police beating of Tyree Nichols. Nichols died three days later. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump is representing the Nichols family. He compares the Nichols video to the 1991 Rodney King beating. In many ways, it's worse because Rodney King survived. Tyree did not survive. The demonstrators in Memphis blocked an interstate bridge that carries traffic over the Mississippi River. The protests there and cities, including Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C., were largely peaceful. The State Department is raising alarms about a crackdown on civil society groups in Russia. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports on this latest blow uh, this past week when a Moscow court closed down Russia's oldest human rights organization. The Moscow Helsinki group was set up in 1976, after the Soviet Union signed the Helsinki Accords acknowledging basic human rights, it inspired similar monitoring groups across the region. State Department spokesman Vedan Patel says by shutting it down, the Kremlin is striking another blow against Russian civil rights. This crackdown on independent civil society and media uh, creates a climate of impunity that enables um, the Kremlin's aggression against its neighbors. He says the U.S. stands in solidarity with Russian human rights defenders, but wouldn't say how the U.S. could help in the face of growing pressure. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Another shooting in East Jerusalem. Police say a 13-year-old Palestinian opened fire today, wounding at least two Israelis. The shooting follows deadly violence Friday outside a synagogue. A Palestinian gunman killed seven people and wounded three others. A day after Israeli troops carried out a deadly raid in the West Bank. The international chemical weapons watchdog says the Syrian government attacked its own people with chlorine in 2018. Terry Schultz reports on the condemnations from the international community. The latest report from the Hague-based Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, says there are reasonable grounds to believe Syria's air force used chlorine gas on civilians in the town of Douma. 43 people were killed and dozens wounded during an attack by the Syrian military on April 7, 2018. The OPCW has also blamed Syrian forces for other chemical attacks that year and in 2017. Syria said it gave up all chemical weapons in 2013 when it joined the organization. But OPCW Director General Fernando Arias says, quote, the world now knows the facts. It's up to the international community to take action. The war in Syria has dragged on for more than a decade, leaving hundreds of thousands dead. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. In New Zealand's biggest city, cleanup has begun following a torrential rain that sparked major flooding and numerous evacuations. The country's new prime minister, Chris Hipkins, is describing the destruction as unprecedented in recent memory. Auckland's emergency management agency says Friday was the wettest day on record. Two men are reported dead and two people remain unaccounted for. On Wall Street, all three major indexes ended the week higher than Nasdaq up by 4.3 percent. NPR's David Gura reports attention now shifts to what the Federal Reserve will decide to do next week. It was a busy week for corporate earnings, which were a mixed bag. Microsoft was among several companies to warn there could be difficult months ahead, thanks to economic uncertainty. Boeing said it's having trouble hiring and with supply chain issues. But the electric car maker Tesla reported record revenue. 
New GDP data from the Commerce Department was stronger than Wall Street expected. In the last quarter, the economy grew at an annual rate of 2.9 percent, but warnings about a looming recession persist. The Federal Reserve's next two-day meeting is scheduled to begin on Tuesday, and Wall Street expects the Fed will raise interest rates again as it fights high inflation, this time by a quarter point. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The British regional airline Flybe has filed for protection from creditors, filing for bankruptcy for the second time in less than three years. The airline says all of its flights are canceled and will not be rescheduled. The British Civil Aviation Authority warning Flybe passengers currently away from home to find an alternative. I'm Giles Snyder. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. By Albany standards, it's been a rocky start to New York's state legislative session with Governor Kathy Hochul's pick for chief judge rejected by the Senate Judiciary Committee and ongoing disagreement about how to approach public safety. Hochul delivers her state budget plan next week, accelerating the horse trading that's long defined the sprint to the new fiscal year that begins April 1st. From New York Public Radio, Ian Pincus speaks to our Capitol correspondent, Karen DeWitt, for an update. Well, it's been a few weeks since session got going. Where do things stand today? Well, uh, we're getting ready to uh, hear Governor Hochul's budget address on Wednesday. And that's, you know, one of the big events of the year, um, partly because this is the time of the year where the governor has a lot more leverage over the legislature to get um, her uh, items passed. She can put policy items in and kind of force the legislature to pass policy items that they might not want to otherwise, uh, you know, and say, well, if you want this in the budget, if you want this for your district, if you you know don't want the budget to be late, then you better agree to uh, these things. And so I think we're going to see uh, Governor Hochul put a lot of unrelated policy items into the budget, and that's what we'll be looking for. We already know about some of her proposals that will be in there that probably won't be that controversial. Um, Hochul's a Democrat, the Democratic-led legislature, and one is to uh, create 800,000 new housing units over the next several years to spend a billion dollars more on uh, the really neglected mental health care system in New York State by putting in more inpatient beds, more community-based treatments, um, more money for child care. Um, a lot of these things probably can be agreed on, but there's probably some things that she's already said she's going to do, including that very uh, lightning rod uh, uh, law, the 2019 bail reform laws, that she wants to revise them yet again. And um, the legislative leaders are, 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 have always been resistant to that, and they're still pretty resistant to that. Yeah, it's such an interesting dynamic, Karen, because you've got the governor and then minority Republicans more or less in agreement about changing those laws. Meantime, the Democratic Assembly Speaker and Senate leader uh, have not signaled any interest in changing it. That's right. Well, uh, the governor just went through an election that should have been it should have been not as close as it was. It was a very close election, and her Republican opponent, Lee Zeldin, made a big deal about crime and the bail reform laws. And so I think that she wants to, you know, look like she's actually, you know, acting to respond to that because it wasn't just Republicans that were concerned about that. A lot of independents, a lot of uh, suburban uh, voters are, you know, worried about crime. So she wants to show that that she has concern about it. What she wants to do is change the law so that uh, judges have more discretion setting bail in more serious crimes. The bail reform laws got rid of most forms of cash bail for nonviolent crimes and misdemeanors, um, but there's always been kind of a question, I think even judges have some questions about, well, when can we set bail? There's a lot of rules, and because of some revisions they did last year, now a lot of the rules conflict. And she's trying one more time to make it more clear and say, look, if it's a serious crime, then, you know, the judges can decide to set bail, even though the, the prior law maybe, you know, suggested that they shouldn't set bail. 
So I, I don't know. I don't know if she's just muddying the waters more, but she's certainly trying because there is a problem. Everybody seems to, most people seem to agree there's a problem with a small group of criminals who are repeat offenders and who are taking advantage of some of these criminal justice reforms. And so she's trying to hone in on those people, the real criminals, without punishing, you know, some person who doesn't have money, creates, a, you know, commits or is accused of committing a minor crime. And then the bail is set so high that they end up sitting in jail for a year for something that they might not have done. And that was the original, you know, intention of the bail reform laws. And we should say uh, the leaders, the Democratic leaders have said it's really too soon to know if the reforms from 2019 uh, have worked at all. There is a legislative hearing happening as we speak where they're supposed to get more data on the bail reform laws. But my question is. With a deadline of April 1st for potential changes, will there be enough data to get an on-time budget uh, and add that to the conversation about what Governor Hochul might want to include in the spending package outside of the budget? Well, I know. That's right. We have had some data, but then everybody disagrees about what the data means. So <laughs> this is almost like, you know, again, in many of our arguments, political arguments, now the facts hardly matter. But, yeah, there's going to be a big hearing on Monday about bail reform, and I'm hoping there will be some genuine information on it. But yeah, the governor has leverage in the budget. Last year, she held up the budget for several days. I think it might have been nine days. Nine days, right. Because she, because she wanted the bail reform changes, and eventually the legislature caved. So I think that is what she's hoping for now. I don't think she's going to get immediate agreement from them. We've already had indications that she won't. Uh, but the question is, what is she going to need to trade for that. And that's going to play out over the next couple of months. Well, what kind of leverage does she have? Obviously, she's started a new four-year term. She has been duly elected. Um, I know the latest Siena College poll showed pretty wide support for the agenda she outlined in the state of the state. Um, does she have a, a cudgel here to use? Um, yeah, if she wanted to, she could submit the budget to the legislature with all her policy things in it and say, take it or leave it. If you don't pass it, we shut down the state, we walk away, and you're to blame. And uh, that has not been used, um, but it's certainly been a threat in the background as early as um, during the, the tenure of Governor David Patterson. And certainly Governor Andrew Cuomo in his first years, you know, would, would mention it and, you know, make it clear that that is something that he might do. So the governor does have the power to do that. You know, other times of the year, the end of the session, you know, other other uh, months, they don't really have that power. But this is the one time that the governors do have that power. And, um, you know, the the legislature, I think, in the end, usually, you know, usually has to has to submit to at least some of some of the, some things that they don't want to do. Well, let's bring into the conversation now the status of Judge Hector LaSalle, Hochul's pick for chief judge. This really adds an interesting dynamic to the budget talks because this will be wrapped up uh, presumably in those conversations over the next couple of months. Yeah, it's super fascinating to political insiders, maybe not so much to the general public, mostly because no one can really figure out what Governor Hochul's strategy is here. Um, she nominated a, a Judge Hector LaSalle. Um, he's the head of a mid-level appeals court. Um, the Senate has to confirm the nomination. A number of um, progressive Democrats in the Senate felt that some of his opinions indicated he might be too conservative. They say the Court of Appeals has been, you know, a leaning conservative for several years. They want, you know, that trend to end. They signaled that to the governor last summer. Nevertheless, the governor decided she liked Hector LaSalle the best, who by, you know, many accounts seems like a good moderate judge. But, you know, there's no such thing as moderation in politics these days. So your your uh, opinions get get twisted around. But anyway, the Judiciary Committee uh, in the Senate, uh, they had a five hour hearing. It sounded like a pretty fair hearing. I listened to all of it. Um, they voted him down Two voted for him, 10 against and seven, you know, voted without recommendation to advance his name. So clearly he does not have the support. Um, the governor has said, you know, that's not good enough. Advice and consent means the full Senate has to vote. Senate Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousin says, no, everything in the Senate goes through the committee. And if the committee rejects something, 
it doesn't go through. Um, and Hochul, you know, keeps saying that she's going to do something about it. She might sue, but she hasn't decided yet um, what to do. And that has just drawn out this narrative and not really to the governor's benefit for weeks and weeks. And it just, it seems, you know, we're just, I, I feel like I'm kind of perplexed as to why she's doing this. Does she have a larger plan? Is she just mad because she thinks that this is a good judge and, you know, she doesn't want to give in? I mean, I guess part of the contrast for me is covering both of the, the Cuomo's, Mario and Andrew Cuomo, and George Pataki, who had three terms, the Republican governor. They always had a long-term strategy with where they were going with certain things. It might not always be apparent, but it would be over time. And Hochul seems more like uh, Governor David Patterson, and even before him, his predecessor, the, the short-lived Governor Elliot Spitzer, where they would kind of just put their foot down on something, and they didn't really care about like the political implications. If they thought it was right, you know, you really couldn't convince them otherwise. Of course, it's too early to make any assessment of what kind of Governor um, Kathy Hochul will be, but it's just it's just interesting to observe this and see the contrast certainly with her predecessor, former Governor Andrew Cuomo. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question that I know you don't have the answer to. But Hochul says the LaSalle nomination, although failed in the Senate Judiciary Committee, ought to go to the full Senate. Um, And she's hinted, as you say, uh, about suing to pursue that end. The Senate leader, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, says that would be an end run and uh, a real almost constitutional crisis calling into question the separation of powers between the branches. And from her perspective, you know, the committee uh, with majority Democrats, that's her party, has rejected the nomination. So it's hard for me to understand why she would bring that to a full Senate vote and ignore the committee's advice. I know Judge Lippman told you that he thinks Hochul's right, but who is right? Well, that's for the courts to decide. If she goes to court, um, it'll actually the Court of Appeals is probably going to have to decide it because I'm not sure what other venue it would go to. And, and yeah, you bring up a good point, Ian. Even if um, Hochul were to win in court, goes before the full Senate, there's no guarantee that LaSalle would win confirmation. I mean, the Republicans who are in the minority have said, you know, they sympathize with Hochul's plight. They think LaSalle is a good judge. But would they put their you know names on the line and their political futures on the line to side with Hochul on a vote that then uh, somebody could go come and primary them about saying that oh they're too close to this Democratic governor so I don't know if they'd go as far as to actually vote for LaSalle on the floor so that's what I mean about it being kind of perplexing what does Hochul win in this if she wins in court then yes I was right it should be the full Senate she sets precedent but it just you know plays out this narrative plays out tensions with the legislature, particularly with the Senate, at a time when she really needs them to, you know, help her get her budget together. It's so interesting. I I wonder what you make of it, you know, mentioning the Cuomos. Um, Former Governor Andrew Cuomo, of course, was happy to go to war with one or both houses of the legislature when he needed to. Uh, Governor Kathy Hochul has really positioned herself as a different kind of leader, a bridge builder. Um, She goes out of her way to talk about the other leaders as being friends. Where does this uh, standoff, as we speak, leave her relationship with Senate leader Stuart Cousins right now? Uh, Well, it's hard to say. Can they put this aside and and work together? Certainly from my sources, the senator is kind of perplexed about this, wondering why she's doing this, why she's picking this fight. But certainly, you know, I don't know if they're, they're still friends, but I think it does, you know, put attention into into the relationship that, you know, maybe wasn't there last year when they were all kind of working together, you know, to make to kind of pick up the pieces after Andrew Cuomo had to resign in disgrace and to just keep going and to, you know, lose as few seats as possible and win as many seats as possible in the you know, 2022 elections. They were all united on that. And now now you see where the cracks are. I mean, I guess really the larger issue is, is Hochul is more of a moderate Democrat. Um, she doesn't she is not getting along right now with the progressive Democrats over this judge fight. And that is going to be where the tensions lie in the budget. They all hung together for a year. But now, you know, many of the, the policy um, cracks are showing. So lastly, what do you uh, let me rephrase that? 
Lastly, Karen, what will you be watching closely for on Wednesday with the budget address? Well, I guess I would say, you know, with past governors, I'd always try to look through and see some kind of hidden thing that they're trying to put in and, and hide. I guess I'd be looking for that, you know, trying to, like, you know, spend the day as quickly as possible, looking through the fine print, seeing if there's anything that's missed. Also, just seeing how the governor reaches out to the legislature. We know where the venue is. It's going to be the kind of small ceremonial office room in the Capitol where she's going to give her presentation. That doesn't leave room for all the, you know, 212 uh, legislators to attend so her kind of not speaking directly to them, is that sending a message? So I guess I want to see how that dynamic plays out. Uh, Karen, thanks as always for taking the time and your insights. You're very welcome. From New York Public Radio, that's Ian Pinkett speaking to Capital Correspondent Karen DeWitt. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, we're talking about the weird, wild winter weather this year. This is Radio Chatskill. This is Greg Triggs. Saturday at 1130, we'll be talking with Lori Fuller, a teacher in Winter Park, Florida. We're going to be talking about her career as an educator, how parents can best motivate their children, and her perspectives as someone who grew up with teachers as well. It's time for Study Hall on Travels with Triggs, 1130, Saturday on WJFF. Where are we going to go? Travels with Triggs. Hi, I'm Tim Bruno, Radio Catskill General Manager. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. Planned giving is another way to support the station. In consultation with your legal and financial advisors, you can name Radio Catskill as a beneficiary in your will, estate plans, insurance policy, IRA, or living trust. Your generosity will help assure the financial viability of this community treasure that's important to you. Email manager at wjffradio.org to learn more. Planned giving, your sound legacy for Radio Catskill. Tens of thousands of tech workers have been laid off in recent months. In an industry that once offered endless opportunity, the workforce is now battling over a small number of jobs. Competing with that market is crazy because right now it's like flip, right? The situation flip. And for those on work visas, there is a tight deadline to nab one or leave the country. That story Monday on All Things Considered from NPR News. This is Radio Chat Skill. I'm Tim Bruno. And Natalie Merchant is right. You may shiver in your bones just thinking about the weather this time of year. But today it will be warmer than yesterday, according to the National Weather Service. Sunshine and clouds mixed with a high of 40. It's been a pretty mild winter in our region compared to other years, but we've had some weird temperature springs with swings with near 40 degree drops in the course of an afternoon and even some t-shirt weather on a few days. Plus, we've seen unusual weather extremes in other parts of the country. Tornadoes in the south, out west, storm after storm, pummeling California. And get this, New York City has yet to see its first measurable snowfall this winter season, and it's likely to set a record-long wait for the season's first snowfall in over 150 years. Through yesterday, Central Park has recorded only a trace of snow since fall. That's over a foot below the city's average season snowfall to date. For the latest episode of his WJFF podcast, Close to Home, Leif Johansson spoke to eight-time Emmy-nominated meteorologist Joe Rao on why we've had such weird winter weather lately. Looking at the weather we're having right now, I mean, we have had unseasonably warm weather with the exception of a brief, serious cold snap. This really, I suppose, is extreme weather in that this probably isn't supposed to be happening quite this much to have long, you know, extended periods of time where we are having this very warm, mild weather. Is this something that you expect to continue seeing in the trend in our region, in in the Hudson Valley, upstate New York, Catskills area, uh, as the years continue? Are we going to see less and less snow? Well, it's weather whiplash. And no, uh, actually, <clears throat> Interestingly, if you look at the weather records from 
The last, uh, well, long-term records are based on 30-year averages. So every 30 years, well, not every 30 years, but every 10 years, we look at the previous 30 and see how things have uh, changed uh, compared to, let's say, you know, of, of further back in time. And actually, we are we here in the Hudson Valley and the Northeast, the New York metropolitan area, we're seeing more snow now than we did, let's say, well, I mean, for example, at Central Park, the uh, the average snowfall total, let's say in the 1970s and 80s per winter was about 25 inches. We now, based upon the last 30 years of records, that has actually gone up to about 30 inches of snow. We have actually increased the amount of snowfall at Central Park by four or five inches. And they say, well, how is that possible? It's global warming. Global warming should have, we be seeing less snow. Well, let's see. Uh, when the atmosphere is warm, it has a much greater capacity to hold moisture. And so, as a result, in the wintertime, when we have uh, a storm coming our way, thanks to global warming, these storms, which are now more potent, are now carrying more moisture, which when they interact with a cold air mass, will end up producing more in the way of snow. And that's why we're seeing, uh, I mean, my goodness, New York City, there was a time when uh, a 20-inch snowfall was an exceedingly rare event. And now during the decade uh, from like 2000 to 2020, we have seen more than a few 20-inch snowstorms in the New York metropolitan area. In fact, for a long time, the all-time record uh, for snow in New York in Central Park for a single storm was the, the blizzard of 88. They had 21 inches in that storm. Then we had to wait until 1947 to get a storm which, uh, which uh, went higher than that, 26 inches. And that stood as the record for a very long, long time. And then all of a sudden in uh, 2005, I believe, we topped that. We, we had uh, 27 inches or 26 and a half inches of snow. And then 10 years later, in 2016, we had a storm with 27 and a half inches. All of a sudden, all of these heavy-duty storms are much heavier than they were back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So there very definitely is something going on, something that happened, and it may very well be due to global warming and climate change. Now, what you just mentioned about the fact that it was so frigidly cold at Christmas and now it's so warm, so much milder in time for New Year's, it's a meteorological whiplash, if you will. But that's not the first time that has happened. We have had cases where that has happened before, where very warm has been replaced by very cold. Also, keep in mind that this is for this part of the country. While This is a big country that we live in. And usually when one part of the country is experiencing unusual warmth, the other part of the country usually is quite the opposite, is experiencing very cold weather. And in fact, while we are basking now in uh, mild temperatures here in the east, the folks out in the West are experiencing unseasonably cold weather and also lots and lots of snow. Again, it's it's because it's, it's not just, you know, the entire uh, nation. There are places that are experiencing one kind of weather as opposed to uh, another. And, you know, this is what we have now. But, you know, while we're enjoying this mild weather and winter has only just gotten started up near the poles, Cold air, dense air is gradually building more and more and more and more, and eventually that's going to slide southward. And so I'm sure that before this winter is over, we're going to have another round of unseasonably cold weather to come back at us, if not later this month, maybe in February and maybe even in March. It's uh, it, it's very variable. It's not uh, it, we we don't we don't stay warm or stay cold for an entire winter. It's always fluctuations. As the temperature of the oceans slowly is is rising, and I imagine this is impacting air currents around the world, yes. are we seeing changes in our neck of the woods in the Northeast with those longer-term currents of air and where we're seeing weather coming from and, and how that is impacting all of us? Well, the Pacific Ocean, of course, uh, is uh, a major player in our weather and uh, 
you've, I'm sure, heard of uh, El Nino and La Nina. These are yeah. areas off of the west coast of South America in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, when we have unusually cool or chilly weather, a pool of chilly weather, that's what we call a La Nina event. And that changes the upper level winds and jet stream. And uh, uh, quite uh, opposite, El Nino is a patch or region of unseasonably warm water off the coast of uh, South America, which, again, changes the jet stream in a different way. Uh, this winter, the winter that we're into right now, is the third consecutive year that we have a La Nina going on. Uh, we've had some very chilly temperatures in the Pacific Ocean, and that has caused uh, unusual changes. It has caused, uh, in the summertime, when we have a La Nina, we have a, a, a rather high number of uh, hurricane activity in the Atlantic Basin, and we've certainly seen our fair share of that over the last few uh, years. But also, interestingly, La Nina means that the western United States uh, is unusually dry. The, uh, the uh, western United States, California, relies on storms from the Pacific during the wintertime to help fill their reservoirs and watersheds because once they get into the spring and summer, there's a paucity, there's a lack of rainfall. And uh, so they are really living off of the amount of water that they had received from all of the storms during the winter. Because of La Nina, the last few years, there haven't been as many of those storms. And uh, the southwestern states are in the middle of a really bad drought. In fact, uh, uh, Lake Mead, I was out in the southwest with my wife uh, back in May, and we saw for our own eyes that uh, many places, the water levels are as low as they have ever been because of the lack of storms. But now, now in the last month or so, we have begun to notice that the storms are beginning to hit the West Coast with greater frequency. And we're now beginning to see that quite possibly La Nina finally is breaking down. And if that be the case, that's good news. It's good news because that means there'll be more storms coming in from the West Coast and there'll be uh, more rain events that'll be helping to fill up uh, reservoirs and watersheds out in the western United States and help to alleviate the drought situation. But also, it's uh, unfortunate because it seems that when this happens, uh, when they during the wintertime, when they get too many of these kinds of storms, the, the, many places out west, out in California, whatever, tend to flood out. Or they get mudslides. Let's say in Malibu, they, they talk about the mudslides that take place and people have to be evacuated. So it, it's, it goes from one extreme to the other. In the summertime, we, we see news reports of places out in California. They show you the, the, the lakes and waterbeds that are drying up. Oh, it's terrible. It's severe drought. And yet to alleviate that, they need rain. And in the wintertime, what happens? They get, they get too much of it sometimes. And now, Instead of, you know, you get stories, instead of people being happy that this is going toward alleviating the drought situation, all you see now are people saying, it's terrible. My house got flooded and everything else. So it's, it's, if it's not one, it's another out in the, uh, out in the Western United States. Crazy, crazy changes that take place, uh, out there with the, uh, with these, uh, Pacific storms. You can listen to Leif's entire conversation with meteorologist Joe Ryo on his podcast, Close to Home, at WJFFradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, that's the way it was. A look back at the evolution of TV news. This is Radio Chat Skill. the old saying that three may keep a secret if two of them are dead? Now multiply that by millions of people with access to classified information. We're keeping so many secrets that actually we really are not very good at keeping those secrets. America's overclassification problem on the next On the Media from WNYC. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. 
Television news has undergone remarkable transformations in the last seven decades. Beginning in 1948, evening newscasts drew tens of millions of viewers nightly and expanded from 15 minutes to 30 minutes when Walter Cronkite became the anchor of the CBS Evening News in 1963. With the launch of CNN in 1980, TV news expanded to 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and a new era in television journalism was born. On Monday night at 7 at the E.B. Crawford Public Library in Monticello, Brian Rose, professor emeritus at Fordham University, looks at these sweeping changes and examines the impact, both good and bad, of television journalism in a presentation called And That's the Way It Was, a look back at 70 years of TV news. And Professor Rose joins us now live with a preview. Good morning and thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. I remember, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when the nightly news was the place, maybe maybe the only place to get the day's news. It was appointment to yeah. television. So, so what happened? Is it, is it Ted Turner's fault? I don't know if we can blame it all on Ted Turner as so much as I think uh, diversity of audience, the fact that there was more uh, demand on people's time, and the sense of having a kind of centralized news source began to disappear, and another thing is the audience was aging for Cronkite and John Chancellor and Dan Rather and so forth. So what began to happen is that fewer and fewer people simply were watching the network news. Even cable news tends to be a largely uh, older audience. I think uh, beginning with the rise of the Internet, young people get, are getting their news from other sources Maybe not legitimate sources, but uh, getting it elsewhere. Yeah, and with you know the changes in in 1980 when CNN was launched, it was 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to wait till 6:30 to get your news. You could find out any time uh, what was going on. And then in 1996, uh, there was a launch of two more TV news 24/7 cable That's channels. Right. That's when MSNBC and Fox News both came on the air with very different ideas about what TV should be. I mean, in the first place, MSNBC was NBC's effort to try to just extend their brand. It it initially was a merger with Microsoft. That's what M in MSNBC means. And Fox News had a very different approach under its uh, chairman and still leader, Rupert Murdoch, who had always despised the establishment uh, in all of its guises wanted to make a place uh, where his brand of news could be. And it was a genius in terms of marketing by claiming that only Fox was objective with that catch-all slogan, fair and balanced. Right. And it, it was, as you mentioned, uh, NBC was just trying to expand its brand maybe to, to yeah. capture those folks that had splintered off of and the evening really, news. And didn't really know what it was doing. Right, uh, yeah. <laughs> they, it, it's interesting to note that in some of its earlier programming efforts, you'll never guess who was paired up together for a show. How about Rachel Maddow and Tucker Carlson? (laughs) He did work there for a time. (laughs) Yes, he did. Well, and then what happened was... Back in his days when Tucker was part of the journalistic establishment. Right. He was writing for mainstream publications, uh, wearing a bow tie, and, uh, you know, could he... Along with Rachel Maddow, right, and then well, then it sort of you know as as the as the years moved on, these these networks and others sort of became more partisan in their view, and then that's caused the audience to become a little bit more siloed in in our viewing habits. I, I would say much more than a little more. Uh, what really happened, of course, is that Fox discovered a master blueprint, which was that you can entice audiences with the kind of partisanship that Rush Limbaugh was exercising on AM radio. And the money that began to pour into Fox News in the billions of dollars, while the other networks were, uh, other news networks were struggling, had to look, you know, like a salvation. But I think we overlooked the fact that things really changed in 2016 for all of the news networks, that when the former president, uh, Former President Donald Trump announced his candidacy. Suddenly, CNN and even MSNBC uh, hit pay dirt. Mm. It was uh, the former president of CBS, Les Moonves, before he had to resign in disgrace, who said, well, Donald Trump may not be good for America, 
but he sure is good for the shareholders of CBS because he just drew enormous audiences. I mean, CNN used to just keep the camera on for hours at Trump rallies, of course, giving him enormous amounts of free airtime. And, and the news sort of crossed over into some form of entertainment in a way. Um, on Monday... Yeah, Monday- yeah, I mean, and, and actually, news as entertainment really goes back even uh, further than that. The O.J. Simpson trial, oh, the yeah. live coverage, really changed the blueprint of how the networks began to think of news as a profit center. You have to remember that prior to 60 Minutes, Network news was a loss leader. It was kind of a public service that the heads of the networks did to please the FCC and their public service requirements. But the high ratings of the O.J. Simpson long, uh, broad, uh, long cable cast showed them that, wow, we can make some money off this. You'll be tackling uh, these subjects and this transformation over the last 70 years on Monday at 7 uh, in the uh, conversation at the E.B. Crawford Public Library. The program is also produced in cooperation with the Warner Library, Florida Public Library, and Chester Public Library. That's at 7 o'clock Monday. Um, Where where do you see TV news in the coming years? What are are the trends? If I knew that, I'd be a wealthy person. Uh, the trends for television overall are not positive. I mean, fewer and fewer people are even watching television. Ask your uh, audience how many of them even get cable TV anymore. Uh, if you're under 40, uh, more than likely you cut the cord years ago. And um, we are now finding out that... Uh, Network news now on NBC, CBS, and ABC is largely weather casting, you know, always leading with a weather disaster. The cable news networks are struggling. When uh, the former president left office, uh, their ratings declined precipitously. CNN uh, particularly is having a very, very tough time uh, attracting audiences. They're in prime time they don't even get 100,000 viewers. And so the future uh, is anyone's guess, but as broadcast and cable TV is declining, uh, who knows? And do you see the, this eroding the trust of um, uh, Americans with, with TV journalism or journalism in general? Uh, does that continue? Well, that, that, that's a whole other uh, powder keg in terms of what trust is. I mean, one of the... Uh, contributions in quotes of the former president was to for a lot of people uh kind of incite this uh notion that you can't trust any legitimate authority and so as a result we have uh, a large portion of the country that simply doesn't believe anything that doesn't come from their particular uh source of information that didn't happen before you mentioned when we started out Half the country used to watch Walter Cronkite or Tom Brokaw and kind of have a general idea what was going on. Now we are in silos where we only trust a particular partisan orientation, whatever that orientation is. It's a, it's a fascinating look back. Uh, your conversation is called And That's the Way It Was, a look back at 70 years of TV news. It's Monday at 7 at the E.B. Crawford Public Library uh, Library via Zoom. More information at ebcpl.org. We've been talking to Professor Emeritus of Fordham University, Brian Rose, about that conversation he'll be presenting on Monday. And thank you for joining us. And in the words it's of my pleasure, in thank the words you for of, inviting me. In the words of Edward R. Morrow, I guess I should say good night and good luck. <laughs> okay. Thanks again for inviting me. Thank you. And we'll take a short break. And when we come back, it's Pride Time. This is Radio Chatsko. This music can reach further than we've ever imagined into worlds that have so little to do with our culture, the culture of Ashkenazi Jews. The music transcends. It takes hold. Someone hears it, falls in love with it. That, that's why I'm so happy to share this with you. I'm Aaron Bendich, and I play a selection of Jewish recordings on Borscht Beat on Radio Catskill. Sunday afternoon at 1. 
sometimes our closest relationships prevent our lives from being whole and happy. And the healthiest solution is to shut them down. Is that happening more lately? Are the real divisions of our time actually affecting our relationships? I'm Kai Wright, host of Notes from America. This week, we team up with our friends from the podcast Death, Sex, and Money to talk about estrangement and take your calls about creating distance. That's next time on Notes from America. Sunday evening at 6, live on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Every month, Dale Blagrove and Brian Irwin bring us Pride Time, a conversation about LGBTQ plus issues. And this month, they're preparing for the new year with financial planning and vision boards. Hello, 2023. Yes, it's 2023. <laughs> I'm so excited. I feel actually it almost feels like the year is over, right? Well, it's so it's still so dark out. I, know, Not, I, I, I need I need more light. I need more light. But today we want to talk to you about what 2023 is going to behold for us. There's a lot going on, a lot planning, lots of fun. But how do we get there? Well, if I was lying to you, I'd say that I plan everything out and do everything according to the plan. Okay. But so, we all know and, that's not true. And, and, and we know that's, and we <laughs> there are dreams. There are dreams out there. So, listen, I want to, I'm going to do with you what it is that I do that really helps me get my year going really strong and focused. Okay. So, the first thing that I do, particularly like this weekend, it's my vision board weekend time. And I do my vision board. Do you know what a vision board is? Yes, I know what a vision board is. Well, I am a millennial. I know what a vision board is. <laughs> oh my gosh. What's a vision board? Vision board is where you take. A giant piece of cardboard or construction, whatever it is, the foam board, and then you attach to it all the things. You attach images of the things that you want to do. It doesn't have to be images of words of things that you're trying to promote. Visualize for yourself into making, like manifesting it. So, oh, there you if go. Like, so if like you want to be more organized, you can put like a file cabinet and then you go like put the word <laughs> organized and then like, and then like you put like, and then, you know, like travel, you can, you know, put all the places that you'd like to travel. If you want to go to Mexico or if you want to go to see Mount Rainier or right. if you want to go like, you know, you put those things on the board and visualize them every day. And therefore it is more forefront in your consciousness. And therefore you are more able to manifest them happening in your life. Well, I find that vision boards are really coming really handy for when you have fallen off your New Year's resolutions, because <laughs> then you're like, oh, my God, what, are, what am I going to do? Right. So this yeah. is a, that's a great thing to do for that. But the yeah. other thing that I'm working. The other thing that I'm working on as well, which is really important, is exercise. Yeah. Instagram shames me into doing that. So, <laughs> so I don't need a vision board because I have Instagram. So I get shamed into exercising every day by Instagram. Daily, right? <laughs> I was like, who are these people? I just want to know yeah, where like, they're Do at. you have a life outside of like living in a gym? Is that your life? Do you not no, read? no. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, so speaking of reading, that's actually the other item on my list. You you know, the, it's about books, right? Reading and that, you know, for myself, I'm reading um, Never Finished by David Goggin, right? And it's okay. a, it's it's an amazing book about endurance strength, kind of uh, okay. overcoming obstacles and, and moving your life forward. It's really, for me, it's really nice. And the other thing about books, uh-huh. why we're on the air here um, at Pride Time, at WJFF in Sullivan County, is we have to talk about the library. Hey. Come on. The libraries that we have are absolutely fantastic. And within our particular area, there's Western Sullivan Public Library. Which is great. I've, I've always liked to go to the library and I have a library card. Do you? Do you use your I library do. card? Do you use it? Next question. Okay. <laughs> but there's lots of great services that are offered through our, our local public library that people don't know. Of course, there, you know, the, the books, there's uh, online services like Rosetta Stone, mm-hmm. there's the newspapers. There's so many things. There's consumer reports. There's just so many things that's available from the library with your library card that are free to you for you to take advantage of. I will never knock the library. The library, I believe, is vital to communities. Without them, we would be that having them is very important. I do think that they are massively underutilized, um, and I will promote them whenever possible. And um, don't you have a book club or something oh my goodness that's right there's a yes yeah it's a book club called cat skills rainbow readers and we focus reading specifically lgbt related books as well as authors promote 
you know, reading within our community. It's really funny because it's always, I'm always saying, yeah, you know, uh, the LGBT community, we read. Right. <laughs> we do. We are We're just we, not fashion we are particularly educated. Listen, you know, not all of us have kids, so we have to do other things with our lives. And part of that is, you know, educating ourselves. Yes. And I love and I love the three different branches that we have and they participate in all the activities around the area, which makes them very, very special and a great part of the the community. And see what's going on at the local library. And which is why they deserve our support. Yes. Always. And then the other thing that I really enjoy as I'm looking forward to the year is tools that I use for planning that really just help me, of course, get through the entire year. Right. So I, I have a, a planner that's from Best Self Journals where I get to identify what my entire day looks like every day, the week. I can see my visions. I can see my future. And you just like don't have anything like that, isn't it? Listen, I will say that I, for a year, used that journal from Best Self, and I did find it very helpful, and that I needed to get a new one, and um, I fell behind in ordering one, um, and then I just fell behind in not using it, and then I just fell behind in general. <laughs> but <laughs> let me tell you, let me tell you, I and actually, I did, I did, I really like the journal. I found it very, like, user-friendly, and I, I really did like it. It is something that that I need to order again. Something that I think is vital that a lot of people don't do is, I mean, like you should focus on financial planning for the year. It is so helpful to really do a deep dive into your financials and find out where you're spending your money. And then you can refocus on where it is and really kind and, you know, bring it all together and narrow it down and be like, what do I actually want to spend money on? Like, where do I actually want to put all this stuff? insanely helpful to go to a person who can help you like organize your finances and just financial planning in general. It's places where I was just like wasting money or throwing money away. That's what I call it. Really throwing money away. Right. Because you particularly now, because we have all these streaming services. Yes. And we don't, why, think that why don't, am I paying for this? I don't stop. Yeah. But I you don't, don't do think this. of missing $5 a month. I know, I know, up. but it's like, but it's, it's, it's wasting time. It's wasting yeah. time. It's wasting yeah, time, so, wasting well, money. You're going to have to sacrifice. Give me three things you're going to do to take care of yourself for this year. Well, one of them, again, I'm going to a financial planner to, you know, go over the finances and break all that down. I think that's really going to help me because I get stressed out about money in general. And so I think that that is going to be very helpful for me personally. Um, also being very clear and direct with people about things that I will and will not do. So I've been going out a lot recently and I just kind of looked over my uh, bank statements and let me just say that I will not be going out for a while um, <laughs> but it's like it's not that I don't want to see people I I want to see people right but it's it's being clear and being that I am only going to do this I am willing to do and what I'm you know happy doing and so right. that is going to take a lot of stress off of me in terms of like I'm not going to feel obligated to go out and do something with people when I know that like I'm going to be stressed about it later no I'm willing to have fun. I'm willing to, you know, go out and, and you know, do to people. That does not mean that I'm willing to break my boundaries to do it. I'd say... Entertaining um, at home. That's always fun. Yes, entertaining at home. I'm a very good cook, by the way. Oh, I know that. <laughs> That's because you never let me cook for you, okay? Well, I'm still waiting for my Thanksgiving um, piece of pie. And it wasn't pie. It was a tart. Okay, the tart, the tart, the tart that never, the tart that never arrived. <laughs> the tart that never arrived. Okay. Right. Anyways, uh, third thing. Oh, well, yes, I'm traveling, but that's over the summer. Okay. And that's well, in, oh, in well, terms you have of planning, to plan for, in terms plan of planning, the, in terms yes. of planning. Yes. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> planning. No, that's happening now. That's happening now. Like we're, we're for our booking out the houses right. now, doing all the good stuff and paying for it in advance. So I don't have to pay for it later. No. Well, that's also part of why, like I'm doing the financial planning now is to see like, because I want to have this set and done. I don't want to have to worry about it is like, what swimsuit do I have to wear? I don't want to have to worry about money. Like I want to be able to go on vacation and have a good time. (laughs) Don't worry about anything else the entire time. Uh, being honest with myself, which is not Ooh. not fun, but being no, honest with, being being honest with myself about what I can and cannot do. Again, yeah, those are that, hard conversations. Yeah, 
it's yeah. not it's not good it's not well fun. you know I but it's say, necessary but if, it, but if you're true well, to yourself but if you're truthful to yeah. yourself guess what then you have no problems being truthful to others true um i will also say that having that conversation but the fallout from not having it right. is way more chaotic and way more stressful than doing it in the moment and being like hey not gonna happen honestly sick <laughs> I'm a cancer. We're great at convincing people that we are amazing people. <laughs> yeah, no, but your eyebrow, your right eyebrow, kind of, kind of um, crunches a little bit, just like that. See that? Look at that. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. So what I'm looking well travel and this year we are dedicating traveling to doing um, road trips. Oh, fun. Yeah. So I think that's going to be kind of interesting if we, if we manage to come back alive and not on, yeah. on the road, uh, but no, it was like, he's never really done, a, you know, done a lot of road trips. So this is oh, like a, okay. a, a, a completely out of the box thing. So that's okay. huge. You know, the other thing is I definitely want to spend a little bit more time with myself meditating. Mm. So it's kind of like that, that um, reaching that peaceful state of mind on a more regular basis. I mean, okay. I have it quite often now, but I would just like something regulate it and non-medicate it. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, I think the, the, the third thing is I've made it a choice just to specifically focus on enjoying just enjoying people, enjoying life and the time that I spend. Like we spend great times together, right? We so do. we always have a great time and it's all and it's always fun, even when you're annoying me. But no. I never annoy you because I'm always a good time. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Nothing said there. But anyway, so those are the three things that I'm looking for, you know, and, you know, I want to make sure that we're still inspiring people, you know, you know, on what we're doing on, on the show. And sometimes something as simple as having conversations like this is important, you know, though, I know that we're going to spend the year really talking and bringing in other guest and host. I'm not our conversations because they're real gives people an opportunity to sit back and go, Oh, yeah, they just have conversations. Right. And I think that's important. And those are the things that we just want the, you know, the people out there within our local community and across the world because they can check out the, this turns into a podcast. Well, I think also like one of the things that like, you know, most people don't understand about like this, us having this like conversation. There is a lot of conversations we have before we have this conversation. Okay. So if you would like more of this, please let everyone know and maybe we'll do some more planning and do longer pieces. <laughs> Brian, thank you so much. I'm so looking forward to spending an, yet another year with our friendship as it grows. This Yay, has been so much wait. fun, Dale. <laughs> yes, this has been so much fun. All right. That's Pride Time with Dale Irwin and or Dale Blagrove and Brian Irwin. And the podcast is available at WJFFradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for this edition of Radio Chat Skill. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Theater, an historic Art Deco cinema on Upper Main Street, Calicoon, New York, featuring new films, classic throwbacks, local film festivals, and live events. Schedule and information at thecalicoontheater.com. From The River Reporter, the community newspaper covering four counties along the Upper Delaware River in Pennsylvania and New York. Riverreporter.com. And from listeners like you. So far, I've discovered almost a dozen folkish covers of Tom Waits songs, and there's not a dud amongst them. The next time on the Wagonload of Monkeys on Radio Catskill with me, Graham Rice, folkish covers of Tom Waits songs. Join me, please, on Sunday afternoon at 3. On last week's Wait, Wait, Emmy Blotnick figured out who Congressman George Santos really is. No, he looks like, like Marco Rubio's Clark Kent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Join us as Secretary of State Anthony Blinken reveals his secret identity. It's an unusually diplomatic news quiz from NPR. Sunday morning at 10 on Radio Catskill. You're listening to Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville. 
W233AH Monticello. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community supported, science based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org.